you become the master of your time and space. Where you live, when you live, how you live, that is your freedom rather than you have to live in a city in a small apartment because that's close to an office where you get paid well. Like that's a lifestyle that some people might want and like they can choose that and everybody else can do something else. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Job van der Voort, co-founder and CEO of Remote, the fintech empowering companies of all sizes to pay and manage workers in over 50 plus countries around the world. Remotes have been on an incredible journey, having scaled from two to 800 employees in just three years, of course, entirely remotely. There's so much we can learn from how Job and his co-founder Marcelo have scaled remotes, so I'm delighted that he's here to join us for today's episode. So Job, thank you so much for joining us. How are things? Thanks. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Doing well? Busy? Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, busy. I- I'm sure. Well, we're going to get into uh, what's keeping you busy very soon, but we always like to start the podcast with some quick fire questions. So if you could finish these sentences, that would be awesome. My first ever job was delivering newspapers and making websites for people. Nice. Good stuff. Yeah. I, I think that the paper round is a traditional one, but the technical roots clearly were there from uh, from an early age. So that's, uh, that's probably unsurprising. Brilliance to me means... I'm someone who likes to build and make products. And if I think about brilliant products, they are not an output of, of brilliance of a particular person, but rather they are just hard work, dedication, iteration, and strong vision. So maybe that's the answer. <laughs> love, yeah, I love that answer. Thank you. A misconception people have about me is? That I am always on the road, that I'm always traveling because I'm the CEO of a big company, but I'm not, or that I even would like that. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I like to be at home and it's, I, I work really hard to try to stay at home as much as possible. Interesting. Do you know what? I am exactly the same. I mean, I do not run a massive company like yourself, but I think everyone assumes that being a CEO and a founder, you've got to be traveling around and seeing people. Whereas, yeah, I think home is where the heart is for me and my heart is very much with my wife and daughter. So try to limit too much travel. I I totally get that. And I guess, well, we'll come on to it. We'll talk a bit about remote, but I guess that probably plays into what you're building. Finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? That could be a perceived failure or a setback in your career but something that you've learned a lot from? Well, I, I had a lot of jobs. My paper job where I was living, I actually got fired from it. So it was a really poor job of my, a poor start of my career. But I think above all is that I did all these random little jobs. It taught me how important it is to spend your time doing something that you love. And if you are working, like most adults are, you spend the majority of your time working. Right? Like the majority of your waking hours and the majority of your waking energy, you are working and doing jobs that I've really hated, especially working in a supermarket where, where I was filling the shelves. I hated that job with a with a passion. It taught me that, well, one, it's important to work hard so you can do something that you really love. Two, that you should be, you know, chasing, finding that thing that you love, that you, that you really love to do. And three, it informed what I subsequently did, which is, you know, I, I started a company first where I wanted to help people find a job that they loved that went nowhere because I had no money and it failed miserably, which is another thing. But it also informed my will to start remote because I realized that, you know, if you are not lucky and you don't live in a great place, your access to opportunities is really, really small and remote work changes that. And so, 
that. What a fantastic answer. And yeah, I think there's some similarities there in terms of, you know, from, from my perspective, I created JBM to, to help people get incredible jobs that they're passionate about, move them out of jobs they hate to ones that, you know, give their life purpose. Yeah, and I'm, I'm super excited to dig into your story now. So thank you for, for sharing a little bit. I think we've got a little glimpse into you as a person and what drives you already, but looking forward to digging in now a bit further. You mentioned that, you know, you've done various jobs, but prior to starting remote, you worked in product at GitLab, which is one of the world's biggest and most kind of prestigious remote companies. And I know you're a part of a scaling journey there. I mean, you must have joined as a very early employee to hundreds of people. So can you tell our listeners just a bit about, you know, your role there, what you did, and some of the biggest lessons that you learned, both, I guess, personally, but also from a professional perspective about how to scale a remote company? Yeah, I joined GitLab when the company was just getting started. So I met Sid, the CEO, at another company, we were both working there and he was going to work full-time on GitLab. And he was like, oh, yep, you know, if you ever want another job, you should join me. So I did. And so I joined GitLab when it was really small. We had almost nothing. Uh, we had an open source product, no paying customers or anything. I believe that Sid sold some of his Bitcoin back then, which was much lower than it is today, <laughs> to pay for my first salary. And I started out as doing, uh, my title was a service engineer. So I did support, I fixed bugs, I know, maybe one or two features, but I just did whatever. I wrote the website, I put a lot of purple all over it, which stuck. And, and then eventually I figured, well, what I'm really doing today, because I, you know, over time you do all sorts of things, you start to specialize more. What I'm really am doing today is what you know, people typically call product. So I should probably call myself a product manager, which I did. And then as the company grew, I gave myself an even fancier title. But there are a few big takeaways. One is that, you know, Sid ran the company and together we ran the company in a way that is very non-traditional in the sense that, well, we didn't have an office. So this is a pretty good starting point. We're very diligent about writing things down and working asynchronously. And all of that worked really well. Nowadays, we know that remote organizations work. Like, like it's a thing. It's a thing that exists and there's a lot of proofing points of that. But back then, it wasn't normal at all. And actually, we didn't know the limits either. We didn't know whether this could scale, whether this could work out, if we've gotten much bigger. And when we raised some money, some of the investors pressured us. We were like, oh, you should open an office in San Francisco you know, to attract talent and to like look like a real company. And we always said, well, you know, if we need to do it, we'll do it. We want the company to be successful. We just found that that was never the case. So that was a really, really big one. And two, you know, we attracted some of the largest companies in the world as our customers and did really well. And I left already, but GitLab went public last year. Those were all things nobody thought were possible for a company that didn't have any offices, right? So that's the big takeaway. Obviously, that informed what I was going to do next. Yeah, amazing. That's so cool. And look, I, it clearly was, uh, it's one of the the great tech success stories, particularly of, of, of remote companies. But what were some of the harder parts of that journey for you? Some of the, the challenges, perhaps in the early days of, of scaling remote or, or for you personally as you as the company grew quicker? I think one thing that was interesting and was a real lesson was that, you know, we had one real competitor. We had a few smaller ones, but one real competitor, which was GitHub, which was and, and still is much, much bigger than than GitLab. And by the time that we started, they had a hundred million dollar in in funding and they were already had like the really strong platform and network effect, right? Where everybody hosts their open source repositories there. And that remains true to today, which is it's really tough and it can feel very disheartening and very intimidating to be up against someone that is much better funded than you, that is much larger that is in a lot of ways much more powerful. And so what advantages did we have? Like we were all just in 
all over the world, right? Like we were not in San Francisco, or maybe a few people were eventually, but like not many of us. But the only thing we had was like a bunch of good ideas and a lot of goodwill. And our product was open source. And we managed to build a really successful business based on those things. And still today, GitLab is like exceeding all of its goals and it's doing really well, if both financially as like it's it's a really great product, still used today. So that was a real challenge. It's really difficult to be in a situation where you feel like, you know, you're the smaller one, someone is outpacing you, outcompeting you, you know, they have more money, they have more power, they have more people. And yet we were able to make it work and make something that people really loved and and and, and preferred. And the trick really was to just build cool stuff. That's also how I usually said it internally, that even like a really big, you know, Goldman Sachs was a customer and then later became an investor. You know, why were they convinced to work with us? Well, I went to their offices and they said, oh, it would be great if it does this. And we're like, okay, yeah, we can do it. We were small, we were nimble and we're, you know, we were willing to just build cool stuff for them and any other customer. So yeah, but I mean, it's definitely challenging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that says something about I've seen founders over the years get fixated on the competition and, you know, continually comparing themselves against them. And that there's there's obviously some some benefit in that. There's lots of learnings you can get from it, but also it can get you to the point where you're kind of almost like just so worried about the competition that you you take your eye off the ball when it comes to building an incredible business, incredible product, and actually focusing on the things that you can control. So you guys clearly did that super successfully. Clearly, you went through that growth story as you mentioned. But what made you want to leave when you did and and, and go it alone? So I guess it would be great to hear the inspiration story, the origin story of Remote. When I joined GitLab initially, I said to Sid, well, I'm not interested in working for you. I want to build my own company. <laughs> I never wanted to work for anybody <laughs> you told else. Him, you told him off the um, bat. Love that. <laughs> I told him off the bat. And so I remember the conversation vividly. And Sid said, that's fine. You work with us from year. You look at, you know, get a look inside of the kitchen to see how we do it. And then you start your own. And that year just turned into five years. But that that wish and that passion to do something myself that never went away. And luckily, you know, GitLab gave me, uh, you know, some financial freedom to to take that leap uh, later on and go by myself. But like, really, that always stayed there, right? Like, and, I, and while I was at GitLab, I started another company with some friends, which went nowhere. I built all sorts of products with my current co-founder, Marcelo, you know, to warm up to a remote. And the problem for, like, that we solve with remote, which is, I want to hire someone in a different country, we encountered that all the time with GitLab. So I understood really well that this problem existed. And I didn't know really well, like I had an idea vaguely how to solve it, right? Like I had like a high level idea, but I didn't really dig in too much. I was, you know, I was still very focused on my job and I wanted to do well at GitLab. But I did understand that this had to be solved for more companies like GitLab to succeed because it seemed like it was way too hard to, at, at scale, continue to hire and employ people across the world without there being something else than what was available at the time. And so that, that is what became remote. Like the, it was very clear that there was this need. And you know, I was five years at GitLab. Five years is a long time. Right? Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's sufficient. If you, if you work for someone else's company for five years, then um, yeah, either, and especially if you're like in high, in, you know, in leadership, you, all, you report to the CEO the entire time, which was my case, then there's the point at which you're like, oh, I've learned enough now, I have to yeah. try it myself. It's time to time to go. Yeah, I love I love that. And uh, and as you said, you're experiencing the challenge that you ended up uh, going on to solve. I guess for any one of our listeners that have, I guess they've already had a snippet about what remote does. But can you share your elevator pitch for us for anyone that's that's new to remote? 
Yeah, it's really straightforward. If you have a company, you want to hire someone in a different country, we facilitate everything necessary to get there. So depending on how you want to hire them, whether they are a contractor or you want to employ them through us, whether you want to offer them benefits or pay them in a particular currency, all of those things we do. Ultimately, what we do is locally we can employ people through our own entities. We run all operations necessary to provide benefits and payroll, everything else that comes with hiring someone locally, like stock options, which are in every country in the world, every government decided themselves that they were seemingly in a total vacuum, how should we deal with these? And so what we do is we have expertise on how to deal with those in every country and we can help with things like tax withholding, whatever else. Amazing. What a great idea. And I know it's going super, super well. I'm sure there are going to be people listening to this that are like you may have been a few years ago, three, four years ago with a great idea, but are kind of scared to maybe take the leap of faith and, and go for it. For those people listening, it'd be great just to understand a bit about whether well, there are any things that you wish you'd have known before you started this journey uh, or any tips or tricks for anyone that's kind of got the idea but is a bit too nervous to go all in. Yeah, I you know, I don't align myself with people that say that you should risk it all because that's not worth it. <laughs> like at all. Like if you're if you're not in a situation where you can, you know, safely take a year or two to do something like this, you probably shouldn't do it. Uh, unless you're rich or you have rich parents, like that's very undoable. And like luckily, you know, GitLab brought put me in a position where I could do that. And oh it was still a bit risky to be honest. That's one. And two, you know, there's ample opportunity to validate your idea way in advance of you actually starting to work on something. And like validation of an idea is like early sales. When we started remote, we only sold like a year and a half in to our first customer because it took us a really long time to build the product and such. But I went back because I was curious about this because someone else asked me. I went back through my emails to see when did I start talking with businesses about this idea other than GitLab. And it was way before we founded the company. And then in the first week, I had seven calls with, you know, I mean, it's not prospects. We had nothing to sell, but I was talking with companies. So it's, it is straightforward to validate your ID very early. And I think that that is something you could do today, right? Like if you have an ID right now, it is not hard and it does not require much effort to talk to a company and validate that idea. And if you struggle with that today, you're going to struggle 10x with that in the future because like, all you have to do is just like Google a company, find someone on Twitter and send them a message saying, hey, I have a few questions and do that, I don't know, 10 times, 50 times. For sure, someone is going to re- respond to you. So that, I would say, I did, this is not something that I wish I knew earlier because I did that. What I wish I knew earlier was, well, the, the one thing I learned is that when your company grows, and especially if you, you got some success and you add more and more people and you hire these you know awesome people to work with and people with much more experience than you, and you bring in all these amazing investors that have seen a million different companies, they are all going to tell you what to do or what they think they would want to do. And there's definitely times where you should follow their advice, especially when it comes to things you're not an expert in or you don't have a good intuition for. But when it's things that you care about, that you have a strong intuition about, or that are on the foundation of your company, you should not forget to listen to yourself. Because I feel there's been times in the past, and I think I've course corrected since then, but there's been times in the past where I let other people do things or run things in their way where I would have wanted to do it differently. And I regretted that. I came to regret that either immediately or just like much later on after the work was done. And I had to be like, yeah, this is not how I see it. And I really think we should change it. (laughs) And I think I'm right, right? 
you know, there's there's something that I found in this company. And so that's it, which is stay true to yourself, I guess, in, if you really want to summarize it. I love that advice. I mean, both bits of those advice for founders are, are incredible around validating your idea. And I think you can do that from where whenever. So get out there and do it. But I think also staying true to yourself. We get a lot of people coming to ask questions about what they should do and how they should do it and which mentors should they speak to. And, and you sometimes feel that inexperienced founders, you know, you're typically creating a business because you have a great idea or an, an expertise in something that where there is a big problem to solve. And I, I've been there, you know, I, I had massive imposter syndrome for a while and, and kept listening to other people out the direction to take our business and almost threw the towel in five years in because I just felt ill-equipped. And it was only that moment where I was like, actually, I, I know which direction. And this is when we started just working with startup scale-ups and, you know, and VCs instead of corporates. I was like, this is where I get my energy. So I think there's a lot to be said for kind of trusting your gut in certain instances and just doubling down on that. Thank you so much, Job. That's really, really interesting. You've obviously, you know, scaled the business. You talked about how long it took the product to get to a point where you could sell it. We're going to come on to talk about hiring, which is my favorite topic in a minute. But in terms of how did you go about scaling the various service offerings that you, you, you offer clients? Because you, you talked about all the different things you do. And were there any particular challenges around the evolution of the business in that respect? Yeah, uh, blood, sweat and tears. That's really it. We had so much demand quite early on because of COVID, right? Everybody started working remotely. Suddenly this EOR market turned out to be a thing, EOR being employer of record. So we couldn't meet the demand. And so <laughs> it was just like trying to do whatever was possible. There was no, There's no magic to it. We just like, what is breaking? Okay, everything. What is most painfully breaking? Well, let's solve that and then go through the next most painful thing that is breaking. That's really it. It's just blood, sweat and tears. We didn't really do any magic. I think the thing that we did really well is, you know, work asynchronously, write stuff down, be really clear about what we have to do and what we don't. And we had almost zero, and we still have, essentially zero time for excursions into, you know, distractions because it's so hard what we're trying to achieve. You know, we, we try to be, you know, locally compliant, run payroll and benefits and all sorts of operations and then make those scalable, which is really, really hard work because everything is designed to be on paper and in person. And we're trying to say, well, we want to do nothing in paper and nothing <laughs> in person. And actually we don't even want to interact with you. And so for us, even up till today, we are just trying to like reduce the constant pressure of new operational load on the business. Operational load being what drives directly the serv our service that we offer to customers. That, uh, yeah, I mean, what can I say? We just like, have to be super focused on solving that. And if we don't do that, the we'll never reach the quality that we want to reach. But our vision is very uh, simple and it's very straightforward. We just, you know, you should be able to hire anybody from anywhere through us, and there should not, on our internal side, we don't want to have any person required to, you know, touch anything, right? Like, it should be a fully hands-free, fully automated experience. It's extremely hard to do in a business that we are in. And then we have set really high bar of, like, how it should work and how fast, how responsive and how beautiful. All we had to do was just, like, try to make it work. So <laughs> we still try to do that today. I love it. And yeah, very hard to do, but you, you guys are clearly doing an incredible job at, at achieving that. And I guess 
linked to that, you do need money to kind of scale companies at this pace and tackle the problem or the market, the size that you're tackling. And you raised two funding rounds in 2020, which totaled, I think, over $46 million. You closed your Series C of a $300 million round backed by leading VCs, some of JBM's clients, Sequoia and Index Ventures. So incredible achievement. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of founders listening to this that will want to replicate that. I know not many will be able to, I'd imagine, at that scale. But just talking about the fundraising process, and look, we are in a different market now, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Are there any particular lessons that you learned from the early days of fundraising, perhaps? Maybe it's how you approach your Series A and how that differs now. You're a bigger business with many more people raising much bigger checks. Yeah, I, look, we were a company that was meeting massive demand after raising our first round. But nonetheless, after we raised the first round, we opened up doors. We were facing massive demand. I had a big, good background and so did my co-founder. So I, it's a very boring story because we are very advantageous, right? Like we're very interesting to VCs. But I, there are a number of things that I learned. I think one of the most important things is that if you are in a luxurious position of being able to choose who to work with, which we were, choose people. You don't actually choose a VC, right? Like you choose a fund, but there's a VC representing it. So if that VC leaves that fund, you might lose them. But nonetheless, if you choose people on your board, if you choose people to work with, choose people that have good references. Do those reference checks yourself. You can just call. You know, you just call or send a Twitter message to another founder who is working with that VC and ask them how is it working with them. Because what you want to do is you want to work with people, and this is the obvious thing, but it's so valuable. Like you learn that it's so valuable. People that challenge you and then one and that in good times challenge you and get you to a point where you are better and in bad times support you and help you, you know get to a better place as a, as a business and as a whole. People that, you know, to a degree can be human with you, right? Like, and see you as a, as a person and, and not just of a reflection of the business. And don't ever work with people that are assholes, even if they're famous or if they're well-known. 100%. If you do that really well, that pays off so incredibly well. Because, and we had that fortune, I really like all the people that we work with because we got to choose them. And so it's been a real pleasure to work with these kind of people that make you better. That above all. Also, also like I should say this, if you're early stage, you have to deeply understand what investors are asking for in a term sheet and then in the subsequent documentation that comes through. You have to really deeply understand what is it like what is the instrument that they're using? If they're investing in you, what is the impact on dilution? How does it look in an exit event? If you don't understand it, you have to spend the time. It's like it's part of your job. You really have to understand it. And anything going into the boards like additional rules or whatever, you have to work with an experienced attorney that has done this countless times and have them explain to you you know what things can you concede what things should you not accept you know how should you deal with this how should you think about it? what does it mean and what kind of circumstances because when you're raising money it's probably when your company is doing well and when you're seen as attractive by the market and everything will see like a good thing right and it's very easy to in that moment to think to yourself well i'm just going to accept whatever they're asking because i just want the money and this company is going to do really really well but you definitely can't predict the future and things don't always go well so you should be really prepared for that Great advice, Jörg. Thank you so much. I'm sure any founders fundraising right now are going to be scribbling away in their notepads uh, as somebody that's done a, a very good job of fundraising. And I know exactly what you mean about souls. I think that's a, that's a philosophy we like to live by here. And, you know, it makes the experience much better, even though fundraising is 
undeniably one of the hardest, probably most soul destroying parts of, of building a business, a VC backed business. You know, it, it's hard graft, but actually, if you're doing it with wonderful people that you respect and that really buy into your vision and they're going to be there for you in the hard times. And we know Hannah Seal, who introduced us very kindly. He's been on the podcast before. Great investors like that and great brands like Index and Sequoia. They're going to be the right people for their journey. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. We need to come on and talk about culture and, and hiring, which is obviously something that we're particularly passionate about at JBM. And you've scaled the business from nothing to over 800 employees in just three years, which is is quite frankly remarkable. It's one of the most common challenges. We talked about fundraising. Hiring is often the biggest challenge that we hear from founders. And this comes up on this podcast time and time again. It's why we are in business, thankfully. <laughs> so I'd love to know how you've approach scaling your team have there been any particularly difficult hires for remote yeah we'd just love to know about how you've gone about it yeah i think first you want to align yourself with people as much as possible and so we have a public handbook at remote.com/handbook which like outlines these are our values this is how we think this is how we communicate and so before i even talk to anybody from the beginning of the company there was already a mutual understanding that well, we both like this, right? Like, you're not going to talk with me if you don't like this handbook. And we would send it up front to people. That's a really good start. So you understand, like, do we have shared values? Do you think in the same way? Same way about working remotely, right? Like, there's, of course, we're not going to hire anybody ever that wants to work for an office. Actually, there have been people that approached us that wanted to work for us. And, you know, in, in, in doing the early discovery, they sort of implied, well, I want to be in an office. And we're like, okay, well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is the wrong company to work for. Yeah, but also about some other things, right? Like, a, you know, around how to communicate and how you prefer to communicate and such. Like, uh, so getting that out of the way is, is a really good start because that filters out like 80% of people that you shouldn't meet with, right? Like, you, know, you definitely shouldn't hire. And from then on, you know, it really depends on how you do it. I think there's a huge difference between hiring, you know, the majority of people versus hiring executives, right? Where for positions where the demand for those positions is high, which in the world of remote work is for almost any position. So I can open like even a software engineering position and we will have a lot of applicants. For those things, it's really important that, and you can do this when the company is really tiny because there's uh, applicant tracking systems that provide this. So you have a really clear structure about how you're going to get hired. Who's going to interview this person? How do you score? How do you decide whether someone gets hired or not? What is the budget available for a particular position, right? Like what do you expect the salary to be? And actually uh, starting, I think this month or last month, you have to be, transparent about the salary in some countries. You can decide all those things up front, having a really clear job description. All of those things you should have up front so that once you start taking in people and people start applying, it's fast, right? And you have you have to have a good understanding of how am I going to hire? Am I going to hire, you know, interview at least X people and then select the best person? I'm not a fan of that, by the way, but 
you could do that. Or uh, do I just hire someone that passes through everything everybody loves? Or do we have like, if anybody says, I don't want to hire this person, that's a hard fee. You know, those kind of rules, decide them up front and then make sure that everybody understands how to interview, right? It shouldn't just be a conversation. There should be a component where you're like, checking on particular things, like is there cultural alignment with this kind of person? And uh, I mean, I definitely had to learn that the hard way, not at remote, but at GitLab, I had a few very bad interviews where <laughs> I had one where someone screamed at me in the interview because I said to them that I was surprised that they didn't know what GitLab did. Wow. So yeah, uh, you know, we, we, you could definitely have, you know, made sure that person, you know, never even... Yeah, yeah, screening, screening that properly. Yeah, and then you know, executive recruiting is very different, and I, I think it is it is harder. Typically, you know, you have candidates that are all in really high demand, and so you have to do much more courting or convincing them to join your company, and it's much more fluid because they might demand more. So that's a very different ballgame. No, it's again brilliant advice, and I, th- I think there is a lot to be said there for that structure. A kind of a rigorous and clear assessment criteria for sure. And I think you're right. I think at the more senior levels, like you do have to sell. I think there's, there's this thing sometimes with no, 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 people should come want to work for me and our company. And we've got this incredible vision, but the best candidates are often in demand and it is a bit of a two way process as well. So I think um, that's something that, that we've seen founders have to kind of maybe sometimes adapt to that. And it's important to, to do so, particularly for the more senior talent. When it comes to, uh, I guess, making those critical maybe it's a senior hire or, or just scaling the team in general are, are there particular tools or processes or or people that have like made a real difference to you you know over the last few years that's a good question i mean i lean a lot on our investors so i ask them for introductions and that's really helpful and i would urge any other founder to do the same right like make them work for, <laughs> for their money but other than that you know nothing nothing in particular other than remote itself right like we use our own tool to hire people so that's Really, really useful, uh, and it saves a lot of uh, saves a lot of time. But yeah, other than that, nothing in particular. It helps to have worked with people that hired a lot of people and to talk with them and ask them how to do good interviews and to sit by, you know, to shadow someone doing an interview. That's really, really helpful. It's worthwhile reading on like how to interview for value alignment, how to ask behavioral questions. I think those are all like key things that are not hard to learn, but you have to. You have to have someone telling you, or you have to read about it, some, uh, and, and then ask about it because you will very quickly fall in the trap of, you know, going through an interview and asking for someone, you know, tell me about the past few years, and then you exchange some pleasantries, and then the interview is over because it's very easy to fill it with that, and that's not a very useful interview. So um, I would say that. But other than that, yeah, nothing in particular. I would say for difficult roles like user recruiter, they are super useful, either internal or external. I love that advice. <laughs> and yeah, I think with companies who they mainly do recruitment internally, which is absolutely legitimate and fair and understandable, I think there's always those tough to hire roles or the, you know, maybe the confidential roles or the particularly senior roles where it's just a really good idea to use an external headhunter that, that really knows the market well. One thing that you've done, I think, is really nailed onboarding. And I've seen your your Notion page, which is a sight to behold if anybody is a, a Notion nerd and, and loves it. It's, it's incredible. And, and you mentioned how important it is to communicate, uh, you know, the written communication in a remote company. I guess that onboarding process must have helped you hire so quickly and so successfully. Can you tell just anyone that might be thinking about applying to remote after this, how, how does that process it work and are there any other tips for founders of remote startups listening about how they can kind of nail that onboarding process 
Yeah, look, there, especially in a remote organization that works asynchronously, you want to not have to repeat yourself. And so anything that requires retelling something should be automated and it can be done very easily. So if you onboard with remote, one, there's a whole bunch of operational tasks that you can automate, right? It's useful to have one or two engineers, depending on the size of your company, dedicated to like improving this flow or having some time spent on making sure that it's easy to enroll with someone. It shouldn't take weeks to just get started, right? Like in theory, your equipment, your signing for things, your you know, the administration stuff, that should all be done the moment someone joins and there should be no hesitation for that. And then the things that you would maybe in a small startup in the very beginning just repeat to people and tell every single person like, this is our vision, this is our mission, this is how we talk to each other. You can just put that in looms. And by the way, it should also be written down in your handbook. And so with us, you know, all of that, you have to just walk through. You have to walk through a bunch of training to understand how we work, what we work, what do we think about. And a lot of that is just like, videos of me or someone else in the organization talking. And then the most crucial bit in, an, in a distributed organization is that you want people to form a bond with their colleagues. And so in the beginning, you should create, and as an ongoing as well, but you should create many opportunities for them to connect with their new colleagues, both inside of their team, but it will be easy because they will be spending time with them anyway, but in particular outside of the team. So they feel like they have an understanding of other parts of the organization, of other people elsewhere in the organization, what they do and why that is important, how they view the organization, and just to you know get them to socialize a little bit. And so you can do that. You can just send up people with random people. A good trick that we took from GitLab, which is not a weird thing, it happens a lot in companies, is to have someone give someone a buddy, an onboarding buddy. And everybody should be like on the list of eligible to become a buddy, right? An onboarding buddy. Because that's really nice. And actually what works really well is that if you have like recent graduates from your onboarding to be those onboarding buddies. So I think that, and then treat onboarding like anything else, like a product. Iterate on it, like continuously improve. We have one or two people at remote. It's not a giant team that are just working on, you know, making sure that we continuously improve this whole thing so that it gets better and better and better and better. That's also really helpful. And uh, yeah, and I always say this, just ship everybody a MacBook, make it, give them good hardware because that's going to save you a lot of time. Like it's <laughs> with us, it's just don't allow, allow people to have shitty hardware or something from home or something. Just give them good hardware, solves a lot of problems. Yeah, for sure. It's it's not difficult to hit, see from that answer just just how you've been able to kind of scale the business so so seamlessly and and how important that part of the process is to to be a good candidate experience as well. It's kind of a nice segue. You, you talked about bringing people together and giving people buddies on during that onboarding uh, process. You know, that plays into a bit about the culture that you're you're building at Remote. So what makes it so special? And how have you effectively scaled it as the business has grown so fast, which is often a, there's that tension between growth and like keeping that early company culture alive. Yeah, it'd be good to know how you've evolved it over the years and how's it changed. Yeah, it hasn't really changed. We wrote down our values, the first one being kindness. It's kindness, ownership, excellence, transparency, and ambition. We want people to be kind to each other because it's not necessary to be unkind to each other in, in, in a professional setting. It's a waste of time. 
And we want to take, people to take ownership so you're not dependent too much on other people, but also you feel that you have freedom to take decisions, right? And then, you know, excellence and then transparency, because it, if you work very transparently, it solves a lot of problems, but it also creates a lot of trust. So those things together, they work at any scale and they work really, really well. And then with that, we take the attitude that we have, which is that, you know, we're in a professional environment, we're all adults, we can be clear and direct with each other without being assholes to each other. And if we do that, then it makes everything really easy. I don't think there's much special about the culture as remote, but I'm always direct, transparent, kind, and that's it. You know, that, that solves all your problems. You don't, you, don't have to do, you don't have to do anything else. Because if you assume all of those things, and we're just honest about it, for example, we wrote in our handbook very clearly, this is not a family because you don't get fired from a family, right? There's no performance review in a family. No, this is a business. We have, you know, professional goals and like, in it, like, let's be realistic about that fact and not be assholes to each other, right? It's a company. And in a company, sometimes, you know, someone doesn't perform and gets fired and it sucks. But also that's kind of how a company works, right? Like, and this is just a mismatch between a person and the role that we had. And that sucks. If you're really honest and transparent about these kind of things, rather than people hearing the word, you know, performance and getting fired and getting scared with that, they're like, oh yeah, no, yeah, it's a business. And like within the context of business, we can all be nice to each other. And as a business, we do well. We don't treat people poorly because we don't have to. That is not going to benefit us long term. That solves for all your problems. And I don't have to worry about culture that much anymore because people self-organize, right? We provide a budget for people to meet in person. We provide a gazillion opt-in opportunities to hang out with each other virtually. One of them, you know, you can expense a VR headset if you want. You can hang out in VR. You can, there's all sorts of Dungeons and Dragons campaigns and whatnot going on. But above all, it's just like, just if you're all adults and you treat each other kindly, then it solves a lot of problems. And you treat people fairly, then that's it. And then if the, if the company, you know, if something hard happens, just be open and transparent and honest about it. And most people will deal well with that. And not everybody and those people, they can work somewhere else. Yeah, fair enough. No, really, really uh, agree with, with everything you said there. I think it's uh, fairness, transparency, you know, being kind, all these things come together. And I think you've created it clearly and create an environment that it just really works. I wanted to come and talk about a bit about the future of work before we get to our wrap-up questions because the world has changed. The success of, of GitHub and remote kind of are like shining lights of the new world of work. But I still think there's this nervousness potentially around certain leaders, certain founders about change, uh, mainly because they're not used to it. So I think you've said before that future of work is, is not about work, it's about freedom. So can, can you elaborate on what you what you mean by that? And share what you think the future of work is going to continue to look like and evolve into in the next sort of five to 10 years. Yeah, I think up until now, up until, let's say, COVID, we had to live in a particular place to work in a, you know, in a company and to have a particular career. And sometimes you would have to move because you want to do something else or, you know, and much of your life, right, on the hours in the day that you have in your working life, which is the vast majority of your life, you spend commuting, you spend you know, dressing up in a particular way, acting in a certain way, because that is what is required at work. And so, you know, you have very little freedom within the confines of the work that you do. And there are no alternatives, right? Which is, you know, freedom in part is the availability of to take, you know, the freedom to take an alternative from whatever action you are going to do. And that disappears when you're, alter you know, you can either work at office one or office two, 
they're different companies and maybe different roles and a slightly different culture, but for the most part, like the same limits on your freedom remain. In the future, and actually arguably today for a small number of people, you can live wherever you want and then there is work because it exists on the internet. And you can work when you want because on the internet, there is no 9 a.m. There is all the time zones, right? And then you can earn really well because companies, especially if you do something that is valuable, it's not just the companies in your local area that have to compete for your productivity. It is every company on the planet. And so the economics and the power shifts to the individual. And through that, it gives you the freedom to not have to commute unless you want to, to not live in a particular location unless you want to live in that location. And you get access to actually better paying opportunities. And that, that's what the freedom is, right? The freedom is you have, you can arrange your time, you can, and like actually I think one of the things that we will start to see happening that is here and there we see some of it is not just flexible hours, but also not just like flexible on how you arrange your day, but also in the amount that you work. Right? Like I, think, I think that is something that we're still not getting to and it will be harder to implement. We'll see some more and more of in the future, which is to say many more part-time jobs, essentially, right? Like in modern vocabulary, where people that you know are willing to say like earn half, but work half, like that's a great proposition. Actually, the country where I am, the Netherlands, part-time work is really prevalent. It's uh, particularly with young parents. Many young parents only work part-time and they choose to spend part of their time with their kids, for example. I think we'll see much more of that across industries, right? And then you become the master of your time and space. Where you live, when you live, how you live, that is your freedom rather than you have to live in a city in a small apartment because that's close to an office where you get paid well. Like that's a lifestyle that some people might want and like they can choose that. And everybody else can do something else. So true. And um, look, in, in lockdown, we launched um, something called SOS, which is effectively a pool of operators that want that fractional, interim, flexible working. And it's by far and away the most successful thing we've ever launched. You know, it, it just kind of hit a nerve with people, both on the candidate side that want to try before they buy, or clients that want to try before you buy, or those that are looking to build something on the side and want something to help fund their startup. There's so many different personas of the people that are involved, but it just, it all points towards freedom. And I think we don't have to work in exactly the same way that we always have done. So yeah, I think you're really paving the way for that. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the years ahead. Last question before we we get into our wrap-up questions. I've heard that you avoid meetings as much as you can, which I I thought was really interesting. So before we get to these last uh, few questions, can you just tell us a bit about why that's the case and how this works well for you and your team. And, and I guess sort of attached to that, if there's anyone listening to this that is looking to ways to improve the way their business works, is there just any other additional things you'd add? Yeah, I don't see the point why people have so many meetings. It's a waste of time. Why is it a waste of time? Because you can just email the things, the same things to each other. <laughs> you need Then you don't need the overhead of scheduling it, blocking it in your calendar, losing the flexibility and also, like meetings are not really good to search through and to scan through and to, you know, taking them on your own time. They're heavily biased towards people that speak up and are loud and are, you know, uh, more extroverted. So, uh, yeah, they're a terrible way to like do most things. Not everything. There's plenty of good reasons to have meetings. I should totally have meetings. And I have meetings all the time. But like, I avoid them when I can. And I, I, I can avoid them by, if someone asks me, hey, can we talk about something for a moment? I will never say yes to that. And it's good because I'm the CEO, so I never have to. But like, that's uh, to me, it's the most stupid thing. Why don't you just say what you want to talk about? 
right? Like, and then maybe we can just ask questions about that and go back and forth until we, we run out reasons to actually have a meeting. And that's how I usually do it. I never accept a meeting from someone that says, hey, do you want to, oh, I want to talk to you about something without them saying what it is. Unless, I don't know, that person is very special or cool or something, but, or I just want to hang out with them, which is a great reason to have a meeting. But yeah, meetings are incredibly inefficient. And like, I've worked with all sorts of different companies and parties and people, and some of them always want to do this like status meetings, which to me is death. Like, it's so boring to me. I'm just agonizing for the fact that I go into this meeting, but I'm waiting for people to like, regurgitate what is the context, which we all have, and then to wait for me to say what is the status on something, which is just like essentially a monologue, which has no, you know, follow-up. Whereas I can just record a loom if they want to see my face or just write it. And that's sufficient. And I actually started to do that. And some people find that very annoying, but uh, I think it's much more efficient. (laughs) (laughs) Now, look, again, some, some more great tips and tricks there for anybody that's fed up of meetings and looking to do things in a slightly more efficient way. I think that we probably could all learn something from that. Yob, it's been a real pleasure. We've got our final three questions that we ask every guest. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for a remote? We are going to solve global employment. That's it. Love it. Big, bold. Yeah, I'm sure you'll go on and do that. If you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Tim Cook. I think he's an amazing operator. I think he doesn't get enough credits for for what he does. I mean, maybe he gets a lot of credits, but yeah, Tim Cook. Nice. No, that's a great one. And finally, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I don't know if this is the best one, but I, I got this one recently and I, it was very smart, but also like typical, which is if something looks magic, there's no magic. <laughs> and we're talking about finance. We're talking about financials of, of something. And it was like, if it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. You know, it's the whole, you know, if it's not, it quacks like a duck. But that was good advice, which I actually, which reminds me of one of the best pieces of advice that I got now, I, I remembered, which is that I got to know your shit. I, and uh, it was not said to me in that, in that way, but that's what it came down to. When I was working in science, my um, principal investigator, he says that either you understand something all the way, you can... You know, if you see a graph, you can understand how they made it, what are the calculations that they used, or you don't really understand what is going on. And that's like, that sort of defined my whole life subsequently, because I've been like incredibly skeptical. And I always seek really hard to really deeply understand something, not just on a surface level, but like to the ability that I can recreate it or explain it from zero. So that's probably. Love that. Well, great, great piece of advice to leave our listeners with. Job, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm very excited to continue to see what you and Remote go on to do and achieve over the years ahead. And uh, yeah, and from all of us here at 40 Minute Mental and JBM, we wish you all the very best. Thanks, James. I'm in awe of what Remote have achieved over the years, and I can't wait to see what this next chapter holds for them. I heard amazing things about Job from previous guest, Hannah Seal, who's a major investor in Remote, and my conversation with Job really didn't disappoint. I hope that you enjoyed it too. As always, please feel free to share your feedback with us by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platforms. That's everything for today, but fear not, we'll be back next Wednesday with another 40 minutes of mentorship, this time with a brilliant Simone Maney, CEO of Elliptic. Here's what you can look forward to. Even CEOs have, you know, those moments of doubt and vulnerability. 
it's not been a series of accidents, but it's definitely been a series of gut decisions based on what I thought would be interesting rather than necessarily what would result in becoming the CEO. That suddenly it felt like this barrier, this invisible barrier existed. And I, I felt quite, it was almost like a grief. Like I felt like I'd lost something that I hadn't expected to lose. Look, I know it seems a bit improbable that someone that did a history degree could end up running a crypto company, but they can. Mm-hmm.